right, welcome back to the Detection Challenging Paradigms podcast. I'm your host, Jared Atkinson, and my co-host, Jonathan Johnson, down there. Wave hi, Johnny. (laughs) And then we have Luke Payne. Uh, He's kind of the guy in charge of this whole shindig. Anyway, um, this week we, we don't have a guest, but what we wanted to do was kind of go through some interesting tweets. So one of the things that we kind of started this podcast to do was uh, we had noticed that there was a lot of good conversation occurring on Twitter. And whenever it really started to get good, people would somebody would inevitably say, hey, you know, Twitter's not the best place to have this conversation. Um, so like maybe we could have it somewhere else. And then we noticed that that converse, that somewhere else never, never really happened or never existed. Um, and so we're kind of going back to our roots in this episode. And one of the things that we're going to do, or basically this entire episode is going to be based around, we're going to look at some tweets that at least spurred some interesting thoughts in our heads. Some of them are uh, pretty new, like a couple are from this past week. Some of them are a little bit older, but maybe just came to our attention. Um, so we're going to introduce a tweet. If you're watching on YouTube, you could see the tweet be brought up on screen. If not, uh, then we'll just read it for you. Um, and then we're going to kind of have a conversation around what we think when we read that, right? And so not saying that we have the right answer, but this is just what goes through our minds and some of the thought processes that we that we might have. So the first, uh, the first uh, tweet that we're looking at is by Dr. Anton Chuvakin, and he ran a poll, and the, the poll was asking, what is the better way to reduce noise in a sock, right? Um, and then the two options that he provided were, uh, the first was tune the tools better, and that received 80% of the votes. I don't know. There's 436 votes total. So 80% of those said we should tune the tools better, about, I guess, 400 out of five, out of, or 350 or so people said that. And then uh, the second was use sore playbooks, which received about 20% of the vote. Um, I think Johnny, when we were discussing this, Johnny mentioned that those are two options, but potentially there's more options. But to, to kind of start off, I think the important thing to, to ask ourselves is, why do we want to reduce noise in the first place? Right. Um, so conceptually, the, the idea, or at least my perspective, is that uh, when you're performing sock operations and you're doing detection, uh, you're, you're performing detection, you have two types of error that you're really concerned about, right? False positives and false negatives. Um, false negatives are where bad things are happening or unauthorized things are happening, but you're not alerting on it. False positives are where you are you are alerting on otherwise benign behavior, right? Um, and so when we talk about noise, when somebody says noise, usually the con the context of what they're talking about is false false positives, right? So those are alerts that are generated that aren't that turn out to not be bad. And I think the the reason why people are concerned about that, at least this is my perspective going into this question, um, is that false positives waste time because it's not actually bad activity. And analysts must kind of review those alerts. And so they end up wasting time that could otherwise be focused on uh, potentially other, uh, like real bad activity, I suppose. Johnny, do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think when I first like come to look at the poll, um, there's a couple things that I like think of. It's like, okay, what are tools, quote unquote? Um, would SOAR playbooks not fall under one of the tools that are existent um, there? Um, so that's kind of like a sub piece that I kind of think of. Another piece is um, kind of walking the dog backwards. Um, what is available to that sock? Uh, how many people? What's the organizational setup? Um, because there's multiple ways. I mean, we talked about this before the podcast. There's, I want to say almost an infinite ways to reduce noise in the sock. Um, and that goes all the way from 
how is data being collected? How is the data being tuned? How's it being parsed into the pipeline? Once it gets into the hands of the detection engineer or whoever is writing the detections, how are they writing those detections and what language and what what uh, platform is it being? Because obviously you're going to get a lot more context inside of like say something like Jupiter than you would Cabana, right? And so um, just moving that forward and then once it gets to the analyst's hands, like how are alerts being like fired? What are you leveraging in terms of playbooks afterwards, et cetera? Um, and those are kind of the things that I think of. Um, and so there's a lot of assumptions that have to be make that have to be made in order to get to the point of tune the tools better or use sort playbooks. Um, and so there's more to it than just those two options potentially. Potentially, yeah. Um, and it kind of like again, it's organizational specific. Um, but there, I've seen like many different ways by which noise could be quote unquote reduced. Um, and it's also like how big is your environment? Because it's a lot easier to reduce noise in a, a let's say a, a one thousand client environment versus a 50,000 client environment, right? Um, and the strategies are going to have to be different accordingly. Gotcha. So yeah, I think, I, so like the question is, is like, does noise have a practical value? I think, right? So um, one of the things that I always think about is both. So when we talk about false positives and false negatives, both of those are error, right? And error is bad. There's, you know, it has a cost, right? And what I like to think about the way, like, People tend to, so the way that I look at it is organizations that I work with tend to be more sensitive to false positives than false negatives. And like my diagnosis for why that is, or like my assumption for why that is, is that false positives are um, tangible, right? So they, they manifest themselves in, in the form of an alert, right? And so like, you know, via the investigation process that a, that a alert is a false positive. But there's no tangible manifestation for false negatives until there's like a breach that becomes known, right? Yeah. Um, to, that, so to, to that point, I just want to stop right there if that's cool. I'm like, I've been like having this thing in my head where I don't even know if false positives necessarily exist. Like if you write, and they, they probably do, and I could be completely wrong here, but the way yeah. I kind of see um, false positives in the term of like the InfoSec community is you created a logic to alert when x happens um the the alert worked so mm -hmm. we're now having to classify okay now the alert fired is this benign or is this malicious and you know the, I don't, like those might not be the best terms either um but i think those are just industry standard kind of term terms that get used um yeah. but personally i'm just not a huge fan of the false positive because it's like if a false positive come through that makes me think like did did your logic yeah. not not work or like because if you think of it in terms of code it's like you either get a a good exit code or you get a bad exit code um yeah so I have, like, whole, code... I have a whole uh, there was actually a tweet that i should have included in this podcast that uh i responded to i don't remember who it was um but there's a whole perspective of this right so yeah. um in order for like so what i'm gonna summarize what you say tell me if i'm misrepresenting it and then i'll kind of explain why i think that saying that no, there's no such thing as false positives is, is incorrect. Okay. I guess. Yeah. Um, so your summary is I am writing, a I am writing an, uh, an analytic we'll say that is going to produce output and the output that like the nature of computing is that if I write the analytic, it's going like, it's going to produce the output that is what I'm looking for. Precisely. Yeah. And so there's no such thing as a false positive because it will always be the thing that I'm looking for. Yeah. And, the, so the the reason why like uh, false positives isn't just a false positives false negatives is not just a computer thing right so like 
uh, with COVID testing, we have false positives, right? And false negatives. Um, basically, anytime that you're classifying something, it, it's, it's a statistical concept, right? And so um, in order for us to like, you have to take a step back and think about like, what am I trying to achieve, right? So I'm trying to detect uh, curb roasting, right? And I write, I write a uh, detection analytic that is my, my best effort to detect curb roasting. Mm. However, like you're inherently flawed, right? I'm yep. inherently flawed. Everybody's, our, our understanding of the problem is inherently flawed because we have some level of ignorance, right? And so we're only able to like, this is the whole idea of abstraction, right? Yep. No matter what level of abstraction we're looking at the problem, we're still higher than the bottom level, yep. right? So like we're never at the ba- at the foundational level of abstraction. And so the false positive is not relevant, related to the analytic, it's related to the, the goal that we're trying to achieve with the analytic. Mm. And so it's, it's not saying this specific, like uh, if like, uh, or like, or operation is incorrect. It's saying, it's telling us that our test, our analytic is not accurately representing the thing that we're trying to use it to represent, which is detecting curb roasting. Mm. Mm. Cause like, I get like, you're not writing the analytic for no reason, I guess is, yeah. is the point. Yeah, right? precisely. So my question is if you're writing the analytic logic to, um, and you're gonna like this conversation cause it really just kind of like goes back to the base condition. Um, yep. If you're writing a logic to detect Kerberosine, A, are you trying to pre-classify the data as malicious by the time it gets to analyst's hands and you only want Kerberosine, malicious Kerberosine no. events? Yeah. Okay, well, then you then you have to ask, okay, it, what's the basis of that Kerberosine logic? And is that just to see when requested TGS tickets happen with RC4 format? Yeah, okay, so I think that... Um, Does it make sense what I'm like- saying or... Yeah, yeah, you're saying like, are you trying to do this all at once, or are you should you have like layers, basically? Yeah, precisely. Yeah. So, and at what point does at what point does a false positive apply to a layer? Gotcha. Yeah. So every layer can have false positives, I guess. Yeah. Right. So okay. So, um, I think one of the big problems that we have in detection is we conflate steps together. Mm-hmm. Conflate mean like we're combining them when they shouldn't be combined, and the um, the idea is is. Ultimately, the whole purpose of detection is we have, this was part of the, the last podcast that we did without a guest where we talked through kind of the axiomatic thought process, which yep. is uh, detection and response is inherently resource constrained. So we only have so many analysts. And like, like you said, it depends on how big you are, um, like how many analysts you have in the sock. That's going to change your capacity, right, for, for noise, quote unquote. Yep. However, uh, it's not trivial to just increase your tolerance for noise so like you could hire more people but hiring more people isn't necessarily like a uh, no cost solution i suppose Um, and so really what the process of detection is is we want to have some process that allows us to intelligently apply our constrained resources right Um, and like as you like you want to have numerous filters this is like the funnel of fidelity idea but you want to have numerous filters and every time it passes a filter, that means that it deserves, you've, you've identified that it deserves additional resources. And you yep. can, additional resources may be more time, more manual investment, whatever. Like there's no, numerous ways those could be manifested. Yep. Um, but as it goes down the pipeline, the, pro, the, the problem that kind of you're talking about, I think, is uh, we, kind of ha- we kind of build our detection system to only give us one shot at identifying whether something deserves maximum resources. Precisely. Right? So like... Uh, it's it's obvious that 
everybody agrees that we should apply more resources to the things that are uh, more likely to be bad because how do you treat just an arbitrary logon event versus uh, an event that has been declared an incident? Yeah. Like when something's declared an incident, we go all hands on deck and we handle it, which means that everybody like implicitly agrees that there's some sort of hierarchy of understanding, you know, the severity of a, of an event. Hmm. But my argument is that there should be additional steps that are placed in there to yeah. slowly build up front. Cause like you have, if you were to look at the average amount of resources applied to arbitrary events that are generated by Sysmon, let's say, the average amount of resources is basically nothing, right? Mm. Uh, because like you're getting billion, millions of events uh, a day and like you're not spending very much resources on it, on most of those. Um, but then when you talk about incidents, the amount of resources is like 100%. Mm. And so like you need some way to say, how do I apply resources between zero and a hundred percent throughout yeah. the pipeline. And whenever, whenever you say resources in terms of like obtaining a million logs, you don't mean computing resources in terms of like at the host base level. Yeah. Well, like, uh, and that's where like, that's what goes back to what you're saying. Resources re could be applied. Your computing resources are constrained as well. Right. So Precisely, like, yeah. so there, yeah, there, so like, uh, that would be like the collection phase, I suppose. Yeah. Which like you had, you conceptually have more computing resources than you have incident response resources. Mm. Right. Yeah. And so like you use you use your uh, large amount of at least the theory, I guess, is that you use a large amount of computing resources to identify where you should apply your incident response resources, which are both are constrained, but they're constrained at different like different exponentially different, I think. Yeah, I man. Yes, yeah, so this is interesting. Um, it, I think. Like we may have just created a problem where we're not actually going to follow through on any of the other. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. Yeah. So it's like it's interesting because I understand like what false positives, false negatives mean. But my question is, like, sometimes I find it that I group. Um, also, I just want to apologize to Luke right now for editing this because my volume is spiking over here on Audacity. So shout out to Luke for all his hard work. Luke um, hates you. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so I kind of find myself grouping false positive the classification false positive with non non-malicious events um, okay and so yeah. whenever we we have those we typically like if we don't have a false positive what is that it's malicious so if you look at it like binary wise okay it's malicious malicious or non-malicious and so then if something's non-malicious and it's a false positive well if we caught what we're trying to catch like we always talk about like service creation for example like the mm -hmm. drunk admin versus an attacker like how do you deter determine which is which? And this kind of like made me think of this, what you were just talking about. What if our ability to classify false positive versus malicious is dependent, well, I think it is dependent on the data metadata that is given to us by an event. Mm -hmm. And so yeah, yeah. dependent on the context that is there in that event will help us discern like, was this malicious or was this a false positive or non-malicious? But then at that same piece, when it comes to asking for that metadata from a vendor, is it really realistic to ask for that piece of data yeah. because of all the nested structures that might be exist inside of the kernel? I think there. Okay, so this one of the things that you said is that there could be false positives at each layer and like each filter, basically, right? Yeah. So um, the way that I would approach, for instance, service creation, it, uh, malicious. We want to detect, let's say, malicious service creation for lateral movement, yeah. right? Um, one of the problems is is that like early on in the detection pipeline, you have a relatively limited amount of context to work with. Mm -hmm. And so you have to be more broad in your your uh, detection 
analytic, I guess. Yeah. As you as you reduce the number of raw events to deal with because you're going through these filters, you're able to apply more manual resources, which means that you can you can typically gather context that was not available in previous steps, right? So for instance, like in the IR step, I could take a disk image or a memory image, for instance, but I can't do that at the detection step because that would, I would be doing that against millions of events and it's just not, I don't, I literally don't have the resources, right? Um, and so um, the way that I would approach this, would I'd say, okay, well, the first thing that we probably want to do is uh, use a like some sort of analytic. I call this step detection, but you could call it whatever you want. Um, that says, I want to know every time a service is created, regardless of whether it's bad, because I, like, I don't like your pre-classify thing. Yeah. I don't want to exclude something or like prematurely because once you exclude it from the pipeline, you're not going to get it back. You like conceptually, you could get it back, but like yeah. nobody's going to, nobody operates that way. Right. Yeah. So like once it's out, once it's marked as uh, not relevant to this analytic, it's now out of the pipeline and you're never going to go back and look at it. And that's where false negatives come from. Right. Yeah. That's is where you exclude dream. something that shouldn't have been excluded. Um, and so the false positive would be if I, if I identify an event as being a service, but it's not actually a service, that would be the false positive. Precisely. Right. Not, not necessarily whether it's malicious or what, because like it's, it's all uh, false positive, false negative is relative to the question that I'm trying to solve. Yep. Not rel, you know, not like uh, at that specific point in time, not, not at the macro level. So then the next step is, okay, we have all these services. Um, maybe we want to differentiate between services that were created remotely and services that were created locally because we're looking for lateral movement, right? And so now it's like, was this thing, and like you, the reason why it's a separate step is, as you know, Johnny, a lot of times that information may not be available to you at the time of detection. Uh, and so you can't, you can't gather that, you know, just arbitrarily, but you could gather it once you start to narrow in your focus, yep. right? And like, and if we're looking for lateral movement, it's safe, probably safe to assume that that service would be created remotely because that's the whole point. Um, and so if we have some context that we could gather for all the services, then we could start to kind of like narrow in the focus. Yeah. And so then it's like, okay, well, if we move to the next step and we end up having a service that in fact was not uh, created remotely, then that would be a false positive. And if we accidentally exclude a service that was created remotely, that'd be a false negative. Yeah. Right. And then we go on to the next step, which is, uh, okay, well, we have all these remotely created services. How do we differentiate between uh, ones that are desired versus ones that are undesired or ones that are benign versus ones that are malicious? And then you would p presumably need to con collect some additional context to yeah. be able to do that. And then there would be a different false positive, false negative evaluation. Yeah. And a good, a good um, for the listeners, a good, like, simple way to um, kind of think of this is think of like join functions, like saying KQL, like, you would not go look like say if you're looking for device events and I like device logon events and you are joining both those together. Like the way Custo is set up is you look for one. If it doesn't meet that criteria, it won't look for the second piece. And the whole point is applying more resources and then mm -hmm. go as you go, go more as you uh, move forward in that logic. Um, yeah, I think correlations expensive. So you want to limit your, the amount of correlation that you do exactly. to things that deserve the, that, to, to events that require the correlation to make a decision. Basically. Yeah, it's like a lot of times, like you'll see, like if you go look at some of my notebooks that I've like published, like a lot of times I go look at Zeek data, but why am I going to go look at Zeek data at the beginning of the detection? Like I'm not going to go do that because like that's going to be expensive for me to go do resource wise. Yeah. And so if unless the Zeek is your base base condition, I guess. Pre precisely. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I mean, I, I agree with that. And I, I like your I like your uh, 
your piece in terms of like applying the false positive at each layer. Um, I, a lot of times I just find that whenever we do end up talking about false positives in terms of a detection fires and now we're at the alert kind of layer. Mm -hmm. To me, I'm always like, okay, well, if it's gotten to this layer, then it's just malicious or non-malicious. And if yeah. like you successfully are looking at all services and you're successfully determining, you're trying to determine which one is malicious and which one's not, and this met the criteria by which you stated, I, yeah, don't, I think I don't know if that's I think me. at the uh, from like the most practical level. Um, so that's like a three step process. It's like collect the event, write your detection, yeah. evaluate whether that detection was accurate. Most implicit. Right? Yeah, that's the, that's the three step. The problem is, is that when you compress it to three steps, uh, you basically are going to be lacking fundamental context. And yeah. you're also probably going to be making like a univariate detection, which is where you only look at like one one variable. Yeah. And so it's like a typical one for service creation would be like. Uh, was this service created with by a, by a process other than services.exe, right? Yeah. Which is actually like a, probably a fairly decent indicator of something being at least out of the ordinary, but it's possible to create malicious services that are created by services.exe, for instance. Yeah, and I think that just goes into like the whole, and we've talked about this a couple of podcasts ago, essentially like different detection strategies, right? Yeah. Um, and that kind of feeds into that. It's a totally another topic, but yeah, you, you start to lose granular control The the less, and like, I'm sure there's some, uh, number of filters that I, I call them filters, phases of detection, whatever you want to call them. There's some optimal number of filters. Um, I think the general rule is the more filters you include, the more granular control you have over how you're making decisions. Um, but there's probably some level of filters that just becomes too congested and like th there's too many, but like definitely if you only have the three filters, which is collect events, uh, write detections and run them against the events and then have an analyst determine whether those detections were those alerts are accurate. You, you have not very much, uh, granular control over what's going on. Yep. But like, as we've dove, as we have gone through like this whole process in just terms of false positives, we can realize that reducing noise inside the sock is a lot more complicated of a problem than oh, yeah. determining whether we need to go to tools or if we need to go to a SOAR playbook, which I'm still kind of in my head thinking that's a sub product of a tool. That's a tool. Yeah. The, yeah. So uh, yeah, I guess the, uh, the way that I interpreted that was uh, tune the tools better was like tune your detections. That's how I, th so I read that. I read it that way. That doesn't yep. mean that everybody read it that way or that's even that what he intended. Um, but I read that as tune the detections like that initial filter, that first filter. Yeah, I want to say that was my first reaction as well. Okay. And then SOAR, SOAR was make the second filter more like robust, basically. Yeah. That's how I read it. So are, are yeah, you willing uh, to take are you willing to take the hit at the detection level or more at the uh analytical contextual tri triage level? Yeah. And so my response was the SOAR, I'd rather use the SOAR because I'd rather delay the uh the elimination of events mm. until i have more context to make that elimination properly so yeah so going back to the uh false positive false negatives so we mentioned that both are bad right so false positives the cost from my perspective is that analysts so whenever there's a fault like a false positive alert so going back to like that three phase thing which is where we collect telemetry we have a detection that identifies alerts and then we have uh, an analyst that determines whether those alerts are correct. When I think of false positive under that context, I think of the detection fired an alert and then it turns out to not be bad. Kind of like the traditional thing yeah. you were talking about. Joe. Well, let me, let me ask you this because I think this is yep. where you're going. Um, but would you rather um, have a false positive or false negative um, and why? 
Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's exactly where I'm going. Okay. So, um, so both are bad, and we have to like it's important that we understand that. And then the other thing that we need to understand is that you're going to know about false positives conceptually because they are tangible, they're alerts, yep. and you're not going to know about false negatives, right? Um, and so there's this aspect of false, it, like increasing false positives is one of the best ways that we know to hedge on false negatives, yep. right? So like the more false positives we allow, like if we allowed 100% of false positives, we'd have no false negatives. Does that make sense? Precisely. And if we allowed no false positives, uh, then we'd have presumably a lot more than zero false negatives. Yep. And so the more open-ended our detection is, the less false negatives we have. So that's that's like kind of the foundational thought process for this conversation. Now, the negative part, at least my understanding of the negative part of false positives is that now you have to apply those analyst resources, which are constrained, you only have so many of them, to events which turn out to not be bad, which means that you might be distracting from actual bad events, if that makes sense. So that's the, I think that's the downside of false, false positives. Yeah. And then a downside of a false negative is you are breached and don't know about it, yeah. right? And so the reason why I'm more sensitive, uh, so there's this author named Nicholas Nas- Nassim Taleb, and he wrote uh, a book called The Black Swan, and then he wrote another one called Anti-Fragile and uh, Skin in the Game. And he's written a bunch of bunch of books that are really interesting from like this risk management kind of uncertainty uh, perspective. And one of the things that he said is that when you're when you're managing risk, you want to maximize you want to maximize your exposure to upside. Uh, like so, uh, Black Swan's about this like. How do you how do you deal with unpredictable events that are only going to happen every once in a while, but they're going to be of gi- ginormous magnitude, right? So like a really good thing, like uh, you bought Bitcoin back in like 2008 or whatever, um, that would be like a really high upside black swan. And then there's like downside black swans, which would be like the financial collapse of uh, like the housing market, for instance. And so people like lost all their money, right? Um, and what he said is you want to maximize your exposure to upside black swans, which is where like, if you buy, if you buy Bitcoin for, if you bought a hundred dollars of Bitcoin back in like the early 2000s or like early 2010s, you now have a, a ton of money, but the risk was a hundred dollars, right? Yeah. So, you know, who cares? The the downside black swans is if I'm like over invested in real estate and I have a million dollars in real estate and then it goes down to zero, then now that's like, I've, I'm overexposed to negative black swan, but the like, the upside of having a million dollars in real estate is like marginal compared to the million dollars. Um, and so when I think about false positives and false negatives in a detection context, I think the the downside, the cost of false positives, at least on a per false positive basis, is relatively small, Yeah. right? Because now you're spending like an extra two minutes looking at something potentially, yep. or you have an automated playbook that's able to process it. Um, but the downside to a false negative is catastrophic. Oh, 100%, yeah. Right? And so that like, and so when I think of like that uh, Nicholas Nassim Taleb kind of perspective of how do you how do you deal with risk, I am more sensitive to false negatives because false negatives are what make your business go out of or make you go out of business basically. And I think yeah, I, I couldn't agree with that, that more. Um, I think the reason why we are so false po- positive prone, meaning we're more so so many people are so sensitive to false positives, is because we see those more, and mm-hmm. typically those are clogging up the pipeline. One thing that just came to my mind. Um, because I just spent this last weekend dealing with a whole bunch of uh, Microsoft recommended like policies for your computers and setting up preventative, preventative measures. There's a lot out there um, and it's a definitely a deep rabbit hole. I think one other way we could reduce noise is preventative measures and mitigations. Mm. Um, because if you have those in place, the attacker essentially 
it makes it harder for them to do something, um, which then. Then you can focus on the things that you can't prevent potentially. Precisely. And you would also, I would imagine that if they had to, like, for example, you can set LSAS to run as a PPL, a protected process. Um, And like, if you want it, like there's ways to like mess with that. It's just takes a bit and it's very, it's very specific behavior. It's going to be a lot easier to write a detection Mm -hmm. for that than dumping regular dumping LSAS where you have to utilize like access masks for the granted access um, that we've, like we've talked about quite a bit. Um, But then also there's a piece there where it's like, you can turn running as, a PPL off and that's in the registry. Well, then you have a detection written for that as well. And then you can kind of know. So like that's and one. the, and the, the general idea is, is that it's far less likely that a benign process is going to turn off the PPL aspect of LSAS than it is for a, a benign, pro- like it's very frequent for a benign process to open a handle to LSAS for instance. Yeah. And so like, it's not impossible for somebody to bypass, but you're funneling them towards a less frequently occurring behavior hence reducing the noise yeah yeah so that's another yeah. piece that's another piece that like is there so the question is like where do we want to reduce noise at do we like at what at what part of the pipeline um and like there's a lot of different options in pieces there um but yeah i couldn't agree more with what you said there because i think we're so sensitive to false positives because we see them so often and that's like one of the i mean honestly that's one of the biggest issues inside socks is like i think that's a question every organization is trying to answer is like how to reduce the noise? How to reduce the mm-hmm. amount of alerts coming in so our analysts can like prioritize? Um, and so, so then my like my question is is um, if you, let's say you have too much noise right mm-hmm. now, right? Um, and what does too much noise mean? Just we're just going to act like yeah. we all understand that, right? Um, so one approach to that is to reduce the amount of alerts, which would be tuning, right? And like, don't get me wrong, not all tuning is bad. There can be very precise tuning to eliminate a lot of noise that it does not affect your false negatives. But in general, I've observed that people aren't that accurate in that approach, yeah. right? So um, that's kind of like, that's my thesis is that well, I think, most people- I think a lot of people have, you know, a different version of what tuning means. Um, like there's a specific person on- Twitter that I think of every time I think of two, two people specifically that I think of, I'm not going to name their names, um, but it's just like every time they bring up tuning inside of Twitter, I disagree with their version of tuning. Um, but then again, who am I to say that their version of tuning is wrong? Because it might just be their organization. But then again, you well, potentially who, can measure whether yeah, or not their tuning but then is wrong. Who are them to say like their way of tuning is going to fit every organization's yeah pipeline? Yeah. Yeah. So where I was going is like tuning is one way to reduce the noise. But there's also, uh, so like the, the assumption is you have a fixed number of analysis resources, SOC resources, we'll say, yep. right? Um, and that's, let's, let's just like one way to, to solve that would be to hire more people and now you could handle more, you could process more events. So you could, you could reduce the number of alerts through tuning or you could increase the number of resources to deal with alerts through hiring, for instance, right? Yep. Or you can increase the efficiency of your resources. So like... Um, you have you let's say you have 10 people right well 10 people they work you know 40 hours a week so you have 400 hours of analysis resources right that's the quantitative aspect of it so like you have 400 hours but like you know not every analyst is going to be as equally capable or uh, as efficient at processing uh, alerts and so there's like there's something like analysis like i call them analysis units which are like how many how many alerts can you process given a, a number of analysts? How many alerts can you type a minute? Yeah, Something exactly. <laughs> and so it's like, um, and so like one aspect would be, can we make our, like, let's say we still are only going to have 400 hours of analysis work. 
like, can we make that 400 hours more efficient mm. through training, through process, through automation, through whatever, right? And yeah. I, I would argue that most organizations that I've interacted with are not as efficient as they can be mm. um, in terms of how like their analysts are being utilized. Mm. And so like the, I think the, before you, so like, obviously there's the really obvious ways to tune things that are like not going to hurt false negatives, like I mentioned. But let's say we've we've handled that. The next thing that I would look at was is how do we make our static analysis units or analysis resources mo as efficient as possible before we start making other tuning decisions? It's kind of that's that's my argument, I guess, because yeah. once you start tuning beyond the obvious, uh, you are now you are now introducing the probability of false negatives into your into your environment. Well, I think I think that a big piece of that plays into investing into your analyst skill sets. Um, yeah. The first piece of that is like identifying what skill sets do you want your analysts to have, Like, right? What is their goal um, in terms of their job? Like, what is their scope? Um, yeah. And then after that, once you define the scope, you can identify, okay, like, do I want this person to know, do they need to know Windows internals? Do they need to know uh, code? Do they need to know, like, and especially like what type of code? Like, do they need to know C++ or they need to know like Kusto? Because I would, I still consider Kusto a code um, in some like I get it's sure. analytical logic, but still yeah. you're, you're manipulating data um, and expecting a specific tangible output. Um, so I think like, and, and then after identifying what those skill sets are, it's I, um, it's investing into your back into your um, your employees in the sense of like, okay, I want you to build these skill sets, um, and so that we can make this process more efficient because we can't throw money at tools all day and not throw money into our employees. Yep. Because like, if you're expecting the tool to do the job and your employee just sit there and click a button, why don't you just write a script for that then? Well, I think one of the problems with um, with that three-part, I'm, I'm just, that's my new thing. I'm gonna call it the three-part detection process. Collect, is that detect. A, is that a blog I smell coming? Investigate, I don't know. That's how it is now. That's not how I think it should be. Um, that's how most organizations are set up, like conceptually. Um, the problem is, is that that investigate phase, like after you detect, first of all, you're detecting way more generically, um, conceptually, and then you're you're asking the investigator to do a lot more heavy lifting, which means that you have to have a broader skill set for your analysts to be yeah. effective. But if you if you basically build out those filters, then you're reducing the scope of what you're asking the people at each filter to do. Yeah. Now, like you know, then we have the question of like, you could have numerous filters that are all, that one person is responsible for all the filters. It mm. really just depends on like how you implement it. But, um, but yeah, it, like by having more filters, you're constraining the expectations of what somebody should be doing during a certain phase, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think a, a piece of that again is like identifying the minimum skills that are going to make that person successful um, in that piece or that approach. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, which uh, which tweet you want to look at next? Oh boy, okay. Four or um, five. I know, I know. I want to talk about the one that we like that we saw today as like the ending one. Which one's that? Uh, the cobalt strike one. Okay. Yep. Um. Okay. So, should we talk about the uh, if I got eight, if I've got eighty eight million malware samples? That's a good one by Steve Miller. Yeah, so Steve Miller, Steve Miller time on Twitter. Uh, and this this was from 2018. So this is an old tweet, but it was actually just brought to my attention by uh, Paul Nelson. 
um, P, I think P Melson on, yeah, P Melson on Twitter, um, as part of some other conversation that I don't, I don't recall what it was, but, um, Steve, Steve kind of talked about this idea of one of the questions is, is like, how do I manage false negatives? Uh, I mean, I feel like a broken record talking about false positives and false negatives, but honestly, that's the, that is the game that we play in detection, right? Yeah. Um, how do we, how do we write a query analytic that reduces the likelihood that a, that bad behavior gets passed without us knowing about it? Right. So that's, that's reducing false negatives. Um, and so one of his thought processes was you built like to some, so I'll just read what he says. If I've got 88 million mouse samples or human driven intrusion sets where bad guys use run keys, these are registry run keys for execution or persistence and my evil finding logic or detection analytic, um, for run keys catches all 88 million of them, then I would guess, and he bolded guess. I didn't even know you could, I don't know if that's bolded. It's like I the, think, it's the markdown version of bolded. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So this is in Slack and I think Slack interpreted it. So he probably put stars around the word guess. Um, that the set of logic is pretty close to complete, right? So the idea here is that if I build a corpus of example uh, examples of an attack technique that has you know 88 million, I think 88 million is just a large number, right? So if I have a large number of examples of a given attack technique, and then I write a detection query that identifies all 88 million of those events, then you could assume that that detection query is pretty robust, mm. right? Um, now the question is, is like, how many false positives do you have in that 88, 88 million? Right. So like another 88 million. Yeah. Um, so that, that's one aspect of like how, you know, how sensitive is your detection analytics? So sensitivity is like, what is, what is the likelihood that I'm going to identify the, uh, the bad stuff. Right. Um, but then there's specificity, which is like, how, how likely am I to ignore not bad stuff? Right. And so the question is, is to detect all 88 million, are you uh, specific enough to where it's actually practically valuable, I suppose? Yeah, I think, I really think this could be coupled with the one that we were talking about when it comes to data, the detection quiz. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay. so I'll, I'll read that one real quick. So, well, it, let's, let's talk, let's, let's not get there yet because I got okay. some stuff that's probably not relevant to that. Okay, so when it comes to the Steve, the Steve Miller one, um, the first thing that comes to my head when it comes to where bad guys use uh, run keys for execution or persistence and my evil find logic for run keys catch all 88 million of them. That's in my head dependent um, that the attacker is using the same variant. What if somehow an attacker can like uh, use run keys and evade your logic um, dependent on what's there? That's one thing that comes to my head because there's different variants to like yep. do registry run key stuff. Which variant are you looking at? Um, yeah. So the idea is, is that if you, so I'm, I'm kind of going off of you. So if you have 88 million, I think his perspective is if I have 88 million examples, that's, that's a pretty, probably a pretty robust set of all known registry run key attacks. Yeah. But what you're saying is that you can't, and maybe with run keys, run keys might be a bad example for this, but like this is certainly possible with other attacks, right? Yeah. Um, it is plausible that there are ways to use an attack technique that is not represented by your 88 million event data set. Yep. And so there's there that, and those would be false negatives, right? I think that's a good point. What you just said, uh, rewind to like, there's definitely other techniques that this could be applied to, um, where the evasion isn't necessarily a piece. Like we've talked about this a lot is like not 
there isn't one analytical logic that's going to ring them all in or catch everything Mm -hmm. there. There's definitely certain instances of that. um, And I think the layering of tuning the noise um, could be like, isn't, isn't a one size fits all thing either. Um, So you might have a logic that doesn't need to be tuned by no means because it has these different things, or you might have these two different logics. Both need to be tuned. Both need to have, somehow the the false positives reduce but again every time you like reduce false positives you're potentially accepting a false negative um whatever the strategy is for that they're not always going i don't think they're always going to be mirrored in the sense of the same process is going to fit both ends like it's they're different problems because like you're looking at different behaviors yeah and i i kind of talk about i call it detectionomics it's just a clever name i know luke loves that name Um, later but there's there's macro detectionomics, which is how do I how do I use or like how confident am I that my set of detection analytics is going to catch a given attack, right? So like attacks are made up of numerous techniques, and so like theoretically, I just need to detect one of those techniques in order to detect the attack, and then you can use your IR process to figure everything else out conceptually, right? So like macro is like how do I identify which techniques I should be creating detections for to uh, increase the likelihood that I'm going to detect a, an arbitrary attack, right? That's macro detectionomics. And then micro detectionomics is given a specific attack technique like run keys or Kerberosting, how confident am I that the uh, detection analytic that I'm making right now will detect the use of that attack, yeah. that attack technique, right? So, um, and like, I think you're, macro detectionomic kind of perspective is predicated on the aggregate of your micro detectionomic perspective right plus like the probability that an attacker uses a given attack technique during their during their process yeah yeah cool okay so yeah generally the idea is is that yeah if you if you could detect 88 million if you could detect all 88 million examples of an attack technique uh that's rapidly approaching rapidly approaching the limit of known iterations of that attack technique right and so like you you're you can be pretty confident that you're going to detect um all instances of the known use case for that attack technique however that doesn't mean that you uh, this is where like unknown unknowns come in that doesn't mean that you are going to have a good approach to some you know unknown version of that attack technique yeah and you can't you can't assume that there's not an unknown version of that attack technique, I guess. Yeah. Okay. So I think this could like filter into the Cobalt Strike one now. I think pretty good. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So um, I'll let you read it since you've been reading all the tweets. And then- okay. So this is uh this was yesterday from Florian Florian Roth uh, at Cyber Ops where the E in Cyber is three. I, I'm sure everybody that listens knows Florian. He's works on the Sigma project and all that kind of stuff. So um. Florian said he, uh, this is going to be hard to describe, but I'll, I'll just read it and then I'll kind of describe the scene in the, cause it's a meme. Um, he said, what would a time traveler from the year 2005 think if he heard that the software used in 95% of today's attacks is sold by a legal company, regi- a, a legal company registered in the U S what would you think if it were registered in Russia? Which, I mean, that's a interesting, yeah. interesting question, right? That's a good point. And, and so then there's this, uh, it's like, 
Simpsons and it's uh, the mobsters from the Simpsons and then they're uh, t- they're like the the Simpsons police chief Wiggum I think is his name and the the other guys Lou and uh, I don't remember what the last guy's name is they're confronting the mobsters and the mobsters have like a body wrapped up uh, with rope and stuff and uh, the cops say stop selling malware is a crime and then the mobsters say oh but it's just an adversary simulation framework and then Lou I think his name is Lou says uh, chief I think that is still a form of malware and then the chief says. I thought that too until he said adversary simulation framework. You got to learn to listen, Lou. And so I think Florian's point is that there's really no distinction between, like, no practical distinction between an adversary simulation framework and malware, I think is the implication of that. But I think you had something you wanted to talk about with that, Jonathan. Yeah, my, my first reaction to that, and I don't know if Florian listens to this. Florian, if you do, we'd love to have you in the podcast sometime. Um, Really appreciate your work. Um, the first thing I think of when I think of this is uh, 95%. Um, is that a true statistic or is that just a known statistic in terms of um, known attacks that we've seen or that he has seen in specific organizations? Because that's a very small subset of what's actually happening in the world. Um, <clears throat> because there's a lot of di- like uh, it wasn't this year. I think it was last year or the year before was the year of the C2s. I mean, I think everybody and their grandmother at this point has written a C2. Um, so obviously, like, the struggle of writing a C2 isn't necessarily, like, the issue here. Um, so someone could be utilizing anything infrastructure-wise to leverage these attacks on different hosts. So 95%, I'm not really positive that's accurate. I, that he might just be shooting in the dark just to make the point. Um, when it comes to a legal company registered in the U.S., um, I'm not a lawyer by no means, so I don't, I'm not going to play the game of what's legal, what's not. Um, people buy the software. And he, if you look in the comments, he mentions putting watermarks and all those other things. I think as a whole in terms of like the blue side of cyber, if we want to move the needle forward at all in terms of detection, we have to step away from the tool argument. Um because if we keep looking at these tools, then we're trying to find easy wins. And, um, and tools are superficial, right? Precisely. So it's like, just the veneer. Exactly. Um, and I think like it's if we just keep looking at these tools, then we are getting easy wins, which easy wins are nice to have. Don't get me wrong. Like obviously Cobalt Strike, as from what we known from known attacks, um, is a C2 that is widely used. Um, but quite like here's a good one with Spectre Ops, uh, Mythic by Cody Thomas. Is that watermarked? It's a public project. No one pays for it, I know. Hey, but man, like, don't be, don't be tearing old Cody down. No, I'm not telling Cody down, but I'm just, I'm just using that as an example, right? I it's like, it. it's a very good C2. I know, like, I, um, I've heard of a lot of people utilizing it. And so it's like, um, it's not a tool problem. It's um, how are we as detection engineers or how are we as analysts um, identifying malicious and benign um, activity inside environments. I think that's kind of like my first uh, my first thought when I read that tweet. Yeah, so I'm going to go... So I assume the 95% is uh, used for dramatic... It's hyper, hyperbolic on purpose for dramatic yep. effect. Um, but I have seen people in all seriousness use a specific percentage to represent the, the frequency of Cobalt Strike. And they will say something like, uh, cobalt strike is used in let's just say 95 percent of today's attacks right and the the thing that they're if you read between the lines what they're saying is 95 percent of known 
attacks, right? Yeah. Um, and so that means that we're detecting of the of the attacks that we're detecting, Cobalt Strike is involved in ninety five percent. Again, ninety five percent is just a placeholder in this case, I think. Um, but w- that's kind of our perspective, and so that means that of all the attacks that we detect, most of them are detected using Cobalt Strike, which could be, there's two possible interpretations, and this might flow into the, the, the other tweet that you were talking about, but there's two possible interpretations of that. One is that Cobalt Strike is in fact used in 95% of all attacks, right? But we don't have the, we don't have the counterfactual data to, to make that determination, right? Because we don't, we, don't know, we don't know of every single attack that's ever conducted, right? And so we only know about attacks that we detect Right. And mm-hmm. so um, so the other interpretation could be that Cobalt Strike is used in every attack that we detect because Cobalt Strike is used by red teams, which then means that we've ca- we've we've ch- changed our detection capability or we've built our detection capability to detect the tool most used by red teams. And so we're actually extremely good at detecting Cobalt Strike and we're terrible at detecting literally everything else. Yeah, and I, I think I think so it's both, inter- I, I'm not saying either of those are correct. I'm just yeah. saying those are two potential interpretations based on the available evidence. Yeah, and I totally understand his argument there. I, mean, I think it's a valid argument, um, but it's also just one of those one of those things when it comes to there's obviously a lot of like OST debate that happened a long, long time ago. Um, but I like to look at the cup half full instead of half empty, but partially because being negative just takes a lot more energy energy than being positive. If um, if Cobalt Strike was more specific on licensing and there wasn't that to me in my head, that would mean there's going to be less open research on what is available in Cobalt Strike, which means to me there's less context into what is available into a lot of C2s because the reality is a lot of C2s take after Cobalt Strike. They use it as like a baseline. Oh, this Cobalt Strike does this. I need to do this in my C2. Um, or like what techniques are available, et cetera. What are the default um, techniques that are available in terms of a command line? Because obviously you can upload a script, do whatever you want um, in a lot of different ways dependent on the technologies available to you. But like, for example, like I think like Cobalt has a make token, right? For um, make and impersonate tokens. Yep. Um, well, that's like, a, that's the default way, right? And so like now I know if I want to look at it from a detection engineering perspective, if I know all these C2s are going to be like somewhat taking after, uh, you know, Cobalt Strike, then maybe I might want to make that as a priority in my detection engineering, um, like creation for uh, detections, my it's- detection creation uh, priority. And so I think like that is kind of a cup that's half full there. Also, um, I'm just a big p- proponent for anything that helps me understand something better is beneficial to me. Because like if I'm looking at like, say like, name pipes for example um and i'm looking at like <clears throat> default cobalt strike name pipes who would know that except anybody who has a cobalt strike license or who has been like hit by cobalt strike well if i have a list of those well i can kind of like that i mean catch that low bottom fruit if you can like why not like those are easy wins um take those when you can and so that's kind of the cup half full too when i see that yeah, I think it's also worth noting that I don't know how it is now since uh, Cobalt Strike was bought by Help Systems. Um, I literally don't know, so I'm pleading yeah. ignorance in this case. But I know that when it was uh, owned by Raphael, that he had a very like I would I would argue that it's probably more might not be perfect, but it was a more robust way to determine who to sell the product to. So like it was controlled more robustly than basically any other 
adversary simulation framework, quote unquote. Yeah. And he even had a blog post that I think I think he had a blog post that discussed some of the uh, checks that he he ran. And like in fact, Florian I think has complained in the past that he was unable to buy a copy of Cobalt Strike, um, which is indicative of the security procedures in some sense. Maybe maybe that was a what we would call a f- false positive. Oh. Or actually, that'd be a false negative. It's like yeah. a good faith act, assuming that Florian is good faith. I think he is. Um, a good faith actor was not able to purchase the tool, right? Um, that would be a false negative, I suppose. Before we move um, on to the next tweet, I do want to say, Florian, I'm a big fan of your Norse mythology in terms of like creating tools and naming them. I'm a big Marvel fan, specifically Thor and Loki. So I don't know um, if you ever hear this, but uh-oh. I named my cat Loki. Sorry, continue. Yeah, we, we probably should talk about the cat thing. I see a bunch of pictures on Instagram with you and a cat. Yeah, I have a cat, three-legged cat, three-legged cat, fucking traitor, dude. Hey, my apartment right now won't let me have dogs, and my girlfriend wanted a cat, so I said, "All right." Oh boy, you said, "Hey, listen, happy girlfriend, happy life." Luke, you when we were talking about Cobalt Strike, you had like kind of a smile on your face. So, did you have anything you wanted to add besides the whipping Johnny? Ever it was unfortunately also something about Johnny. Oh, okay. Never mind. We'll, we'll say it then. What do you got to say? It's de facto. What did he say? Defalto. Oh. Whatever, he also man. said uh, low bottom fruit, not low hanging fruit. Okay. Also, oh, I'm down with that low bottom fruit, though. <laughs> I just want to point out that Luke has, Luke has TikTok hair. That's all I want to say. It's like the, you know that apple bottom jeans? I heard this on the radio the other day. Take, taking me back. Apple bottom jeans, low bottom fruit. I think that's how the song goes, isn't it? Luke is also leveraging his advanced uh, audio video capabilities to play Call of Duty right now. So, Wow. <laughs> wow. Listeners, just so you know, Jared and I actually care about you guys. Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> God bless. <laughs> they don't let me talk, so I have to do He's something He's a pure else. multitasker, though, if he caught the... Def- def- what was it? De- what? De facto. De facto. De facto. The old defaulto. I do okay. this when I like watch movies. Like I have to be doing something, so my wife accuses me of not paying attention, but it's just severe ADHD. Yeah. All right, back to stuff that actually matters. Boom. Luke, go ahead and cover yourself up. We don't need to see you right now. Um, <laughs> anyway, the next uh, the next interesting one was from at Debug Privilege on Twitter, and uh, and he asked he ran a hunting quiz. This was this was a while ago, September sixteenth. So back in September. And this is something that I see I see frequently, and I thought it was just kind of worthwhile to talk through our perspective on it, right? So uh, basically, it's it says hunting quiz. What is the attacker doing here? Please share as much detail as you can. And then uh, he shared a forty six forty eight event, and I, uh, the first one that he shared I think was wrong, so the second came back with the second one. Yeah, uh, forty six forty eight event, which is. Uh, an explicit credential logon event, um, and then uh, and it has some information. So, for instance, it had the subject of the logon, which was a user named Kiesa. There was account an account whose credentials were used, which was Colby, um, and then there was like a target server, which is uh, the SPN RPCSS slash DC dot uh, a process name SVC host, and a port one three five that were used. I'll let you start. But first thing I want to say is like, I love it when people do anything on Twitter just to get interaction in terms of like bringing the community together. I think that's where collaboration um, stems from. So I don't know if Deepak privilege is this, but 
you know, thank you for doing that. I think this is a, a really cool way of like bringing people together. <clears throat> um, the one thing that um, I look like when I first interpret this was like, maybe it's an ego thing on my end, but I look at this log and I'm like, I don't like, I know a decent amount of RPC. I don't know what's going on here. Like to me, I'm like, yeah, one, three, five is an RPC port. Yeah. I know it's an RPC service. Like looks like some type of either impersonation is happening or something along those lines. Um, but I'm like, dang, maybe I don't know as much as I thought. <laughs> and so like, that was kind of my first reaction. My second reaction is, um, context in terms of, uh, you know, um, data and activity. Um, and we've talked about this a lot, like not one event rules them all. So like, there's no way you can look, I mean, tip, I don't want to say no way. There's the majority of the time, there's not a great way to look at one event and say, Hey, X is happening. Um, you have to kind of bring in other events just to bring in that context. Um, so that people can like start to contextualize that piece of data, start to make decisions and move forward through that analytical process. Um, so it's it's very vindictive of like a um, what what part of the event did you find more most uh, elaborate in terms of like to be specific most about valuable most valuable in terms of like the activity chain happening um, and where someone might utilize a different event um, to say like think that that's more valuable to detect X right um, I think that's a piece there. Um, and I think this could potentially lead to uh, assumptions upon data, which typically is a, a pretty scary thing that can happen. Just assumptions in general uh, cause gaps. And so if you start to make assumptions of the data that is available to us, um, then we start to apply a severity to that piece of data as well when we see it in our environment. Whenever that, that one event could apply to 20 other techniques, um, and it all could mean different things in terms of the behavioral chain that's happening Yep. So, yeah. So what I, what I, I think what Johnny's, uh, so the answer to the, to the question, what's happening here was that the user had used WMIC to start a process as a separate user. So Kiesa, I think is the name of the original account. And then the, the new account was Colby and they used WMIC to run the win 32 process create method. Um, the, the problem that I, that I see, I think, and again, this is the, like getting people to look at logs, I think is a very valuable exercise, right? Just to know what's available to you. The problem that I see is that there's no, there's not enough information included in the log for me to make the jump to, and I like, I think I know a lot about WMI relative to the average, um, to make the jump to uh, WMIC Win32 process uh, create method, right? Because really what this is saying is, hey, a user logged on explicitly as a different user and they did this via RPC. Well, there's numerous ways that you could log on via RPC um, that would not necessarily be Win32 process create. So there's a number of folks that said, hey, this looks like WMI exec. And then they you know, they were told that they were correct. Uh, like, oh, or they use WMI lateral movement. And it's like, yep, you're correct. But that's one of those to where like a, a broken clock is right, you know, twice a day type thing to where you were right. But that doesn't mean that you use the pro the proper process to get to the answer. This is why, like in math, you got to show your work, right? So you show your work so that we know that you didn't just write down a number and happen to be right, if that if that makes sense. And so, like the way that I would like to see these types of ex exercises go is, uh, like, so first of all, by looking at this event, you can't even assume that it's malicious, let alone what the malicious specific malicious action was, if that makes sense. Because there's not enough. It just Literally, all it's telling you is that somebody logged on as a separate user 
over port 135 to the DC, right? That's what it's telling you. And that's like, that's explicit. Um, and anything beyond that is conjecture, right? Yeah. Um, so what would be valuable, I like what would be a good exercise, I think, is given this event, what what questions do you have and what other events would you would you want in order to like kind of like walk walk them walk the dog right so it's like given this event what do you know what questions do you have and what what other events would you like what other context would you need in order to make a decision if that makes sense i think that's like a a better process to follow than kind of giving just enough information for somebody to make a guess if that makes sense yeah yeah i and i think like any piece of data in terms like first off like being able to jump into the event log and be comfortable inside of there is a is a huge skill um dependent on your job right so not everybody needs to have that skill um but being able to do that is like tremendous first off um but being able to pull out the specifics um of an event to what's important to you as the analyst to say hey x is happening um that's another huge skill um but it's really hard to specify, hey, like this is happening unless A, you've seen it many, many times and it looks exactly like what you've seen before. Um, because like like I, I wouldn't have guessed it was WMI. There's no way in H-E double hockey six I wouldn't guess it was WMI. Um, and I think like adding context in terms like that's why I'm a huge fan of like uh like Roberto Rodriguez has this project out there called the Mortar Dataset. So I'm a big fan of that in general, simply because um, it allows you to get a data set, the full behavioral chain that's there, and then jump into the event logs. Um, you have to do that inside of like health or whatever, but it's still a good place to start. Um, and you get the full context there. You're not just limited to one event. Cool. Yeah, The um, one thing that this reminds me of, I heard this quote that was kind of talking about... Um, the difference between going forward and going backwards as far as your analysis. And so it's one of the, the, the way that they set it up was uh, imagine an ice cube, right? So there's an ice cube on the table in a warm room. Um, and then imagine the puddle that's going to be left from the ice cube. And I think most people can can envision that in their head. Like you could, you could translate, you know what an ice cube looks like, right? And maybe there's slight, like you might have uh, a square ice cube or like a cube ice cube, or you might have like a, a whiskey stone that's a, a ball right um, but generally we kind of all envision an ice cube and then we can imagine that when it melts the puddle that's going to be formed as a result of it so you could go you could you could in your mind you could usually go forward uh, assuming that you at least have some general understanding of the phenomenon that's occurring um, but it's really difficult to go backwards right so if you see a puddle and somebody says you know what caused this puddle to occur and you say oh well it was an ice cube it may have been an ice cube, but it may have just been somebody that spilt a glass of water, right? And yeah. so it's not it's not obvious to go backwards. And so what we're what we're doing in this exercise is we're we're looking at the puddle and then we're asking somebody to tell us how the puddle like how the puddle got there. Um, but there's not enough information for us to go back to the ice cube because it may not. There's there's numerous. I guess the idea is is that there's numerous inputs that can reach an output. If that makes sense, so you, like if you an an input predictably reaches an output, but for that given output, numerous inputs might reach that output. Yeah, and so it's it's uh, it's advantageous advantageous for us to say when somebody does Win thirty two process uh, create, this is going to be the result, right? 
but that result doesn't necessarily mean that that was the thing that caused that result if that makes sense yeah no, that makes sense yeah so we just have to be careful about reversing reversing information right yeah cool well um i don't know did you have any other no that was it for me i know this one's a little bit shorter yeah i think we got we hit about an hour um luke did you have anything you wanted to touch on nope you gotta pause the game real quick i'm out of it okay you you get a dub because he lost bro i'm dropping 100 kills a game it's multiplayer though there's no warzone yet for the new one oh is it the new call of duty yeah hmm I do you still want, want to say, do you want, even do you though want, I'm objectively the worst Call of Duty player in this in this room right now, I have the most dubs on Warzone. So, hmm. I'll allow it. And some would say that getting a dub is, you know, all that matters. Yeah. Also, out of the three of us here, you've also been carried to victory more than anybody yeah. else. Well, yeah, yeah. I think Sonny so. and I are tied for the biggest yeah. backpack. I'm going to send you my chiropractor bill this week. Yeah. 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 Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right. <laughs> It's about survival. the The name of the game. So when I was in the Air Force, we uh, or when I was like in ROTC to get in the Air Force, we had this summer camp. This is just those are you, that if same. If you care game about period. computers and you don't care about funny personal stories, then just leave now. I guess. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but we'll include it anyway. Um, yeah. So when I was in ROTC, we did this. Like you do this field training, which is like the <clears throat> the nice version of boot camp for officers. And uh, one of the things that you had to do was this like leadership reaction course, which is Basically, there's like this uh, this little river that you have to cross and there's like different obstacles depending on which one you're assigned. And like you're you're the scenario is uh, you're like a down a downed pilot and you have a crew with you and you have to get over this river to get out of like the enemy territory and you have five minutes or they're going to get there and kill you. And so that's the scenario that you're given. And uh, and like when you're learning to be an officer, there's all these like processes like some of you may be familiar with like the OODA loop. That's like an Air Force process. Um, and you're supposed to follow these processes as a leader, right? And you're supposed to do things like assign somebody to keep track of time because you only have five minutes, right? And so you need to know when you're getting close to the end of the five minutes and you're supposed to, you know, observe your scenario, orient your team, decide what you're going to do and then act. And then you reorient, observe, whatever you re reobserve, reorient, so on and so forth. And so, but like my perspective is if we don't get over this damn river in five minutes, we're all going to get killed because that's what the scenario is. Right. And so you know, my team, when I was the leader, we got over, we got over the river and, uh, I got marked as like, you know, a stand like satisfactory or whatever, which is just like middle of the road. And then we had other people, uh, who did not get us over the river, AKA we got, we got killed by the, by the bad guys. Um, but they got, they got like exceeds expectations because they followed the OODA loop and it's like, well, yeah, but is it, I don't know. Like, I feel like the first thing should be if you don't survive, then you don't get, you don't get a passing grade. And then after you, after you survive, then it's like, okay, now we could evaluate, you know, the process by which you survived in. I don't know. Just my, that's my opinion, bro. Anyway, that going back to Warzone, the point is, is that if you don't get a dub, it doesn't matter if you got 14 kills or dropped a 20 we, bomb. Bro, we never, we never said that it mattered to say about kills. I'm just saying like, Oh, it matters when you're when you're when you're the one getting killed and constantly revived, and you're still carried to the victory. I do my fair share of reviving. It's usually Luke and I also got a dub once when we when we weren't quite as good as we are now. We got a dub with only one kill. Let me let me tell the the listeners a story about Luke Payne over here. Here we are, Verdansk, all three of us. I'm downed on top of 
a uh, building and he's sniping. <clears throat> I'm like, yo, Luke, revive me. Yo, Luke, revive me. He's still popping shots. Yo, Luke, revive me. And he's like, hold on. I, I'm pretty sure I die because I waited so long because you're too busy sniping. And then I died in the gulag. And then you guys spend $4,500 to bring me back. Please explain. Please, please explain. I don't revive. Right? When let, Let's take, for example. Yeah, it's for the, it's for the no, peons. No, 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 like hold, me, on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I was already dead though. <laughs> Let's take any any major heroic movie, right? Uh, Question: Who beat Who beat you in one v one? Military nice. with uh, military style tactics. What's a good example here? The saving uh, uh, um, the Patriot. Sure, Mel Gibson. Yeah, okay. Mel Gibson's the Patriot, right? They're fighting the British, right? They're out there like doing their thing. If there's Mel Gibson and like 30 other guys and they run out there and two of the other guys get shot, does Mel Gibson stop and put pressure on the wound? No, 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 no. One of the other little people on the yeah. side <laughs> handles that. So when I'm on the roof of the building, you know, not dead because I don't suck. Right. You see why we don't let Luke talk though, because he already apparently has a big enough ego. <laughs> like, but th there's no other peons to revive me but you. Then, I hope you win the gulag. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, there's plenty of movie references where the hero stops and heals whoever it is, and let the bad guy gets away. Not real heroes, if that's what they were doing. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Detection Challenging Paradigms. If you want to keep up with us, you can do so on Twitter at DCP the Podcast or on our website, dcppodcast.com, where you'll find links to all previous episodes and their episode guides, as well as to our store, where 100% of our proceeds benefit charity. Uh, thanks again for listening, and we'll see you in the next one.